Fraud Pod. Hello, listener, and thank you so much for joining us on this 48th edition of the Teaching Abroad Pod. I'm your host, Rowan Lomas, and joining me this week as co-host is my colleague, Ashley, from our operations department. How are things going with you, Ashley? Good, thank you. I'm getting all the back-to-school feels this week. How about you? For sure. The kid is being retrained to wake up early and a new lunchbox and backpack magically appeared recently. I'll be honest, Aurora is uh, definitely the driver of all this back to school stuff, but I can see that things are happening in that regard. Uh, But as you know, we have an upcoming interview with someone who has previously taught in Japan. In fact, she's still teaching there, so it must really have staying power for some traveling teachers. I remember when I was in Korea that there were some who'd be there like one to three years, maybe that was their plan. And then there were those who, I think that was their plan too, but they'd already been there for over a decade and might never leave what you might call a lifer. So uh, (laughs) I was curious, what was the typical timeline of a teacher, foreign teacher in Japan when you were there? Um, I I mean, I guess it's kind of, the same um, in terms of current teachers, I would say it, it was a, a shorter gap, but I did have some coaches who had previously been teachers that had kind of established themselves more permanently in Japan. So they weren't teaching quite as much. It was more administrative roles, um, but that's definitely where they had started. So it's, it's certainly very easy to understand why someone could make that decision. When you say coaches, you mean like at a an international school, they're like a a sports coach or something like that? <laughs> no, at the school. So, I mean, they were kind of one step up from teachers. So I guess I, I didn't really want to call them supervisors, but that's kind of what they were. In a oh, sense. like senior teachers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. Gotcha, gotcha. All right. Well, as I mentioned shortly, we'll have an interview with longtime Japan teacher Kirsten Erb, who has taught in all sorts of school types and I think has some tips on how to deal with some of the less than ideal situations you might find yourself in with some, shall we say, uh, questionably managed institutes, and who has traveled to many amazing sites around the country that I can't wait to hear about. But first, a word from our sponsor. With Oxford Seminars, starting your new career teaching ESL couldn't be easier. Oxford Seminars has trained more than 70,000 teachers over the past 30 years, and you could be next. Our comprehensive 120-hour program starts with live instruction from an experienced ESL teacher, followed by convenient online modules. If your goal is to relocate overseas or even teach from the comfort of your own home, Oxford Seminar's renowned Lifetime Job Placement Service will get you where you want to be. Right now, you can get $50 off your Oxford Seminar's TESOL, TESOL, TEFL course price when paying in full by calling one 225 2480 and giving the code teaching abroad pod. Visit OxfordSeminars.com today to find out more. Welcome back, listeners. We are now joined by Tesla Course graduate Kirsten Erb, who's been teaching in Japan since way back in 2017. She has a bachelor's degree majoring in English from St. Thomas University and has taught students ranging in age from practically infant to 19 at a variety of language schools and preschools. Welcome to the pod, Kirsten. Hey, Uh, I'll launch into it. Um, Having done this myself, I do have some idea of what might happen here, but could you tell us how you teach English to a student who is zero years of age? How does that work exactly? (laughs) 
<laughs> so when it's a child that young, it's actually a mom and baby class. So the mom is in the classroom and the baby's zero. Like they're not even speaking in Japanese. So the class is mostly geared towards the mom. So we're teaching more language that the moms can use at home. So like, oh, apple, do you want apples? Like simple things like that, just like fruit names, like do you want? That way the mom, when they're talking to the kids at home, can ask them, do you want juice? Do you want an apple? And that way the kid's like hearing it. It is sometimes a little challenging because sometimes you get moms who will come in with the baby and they're thinking that we're going to teach the baby. Like they're expecting us to like have a conversation with their zero year old, <laughs> um, which, you know, is, is fun. It's fun to chat with the little ones, but they're, they're not really going to respond. Yeah, so yeah. sometimes the moms are a little like shocked when they actually have to like do the lesson too. <laughs> but usually it's pretty good. Usually they know what they're getting into. And it's kind of, if you like babies, some of the moms are really friendly and they're like, here, hold her. And you get to just like hold a little baby and just like chat with the mom and get paid for it. So honestly, I think it's kind of like I'm getting paid to hold a cute little thing that just wants to snuggle. Yeah. Like I'm winning in life. This doesn't involve changing diapers then. That doesn't involve changing diapers. However, working at preschools definitely does. So it could be something you encounter depending on the school and age range. Even at... Eikaiwa. So Eikaiwa's are like really different from preschools because Eikaiwa's are like the after school classes. So you're usually teaching kids after they finish school. But even then, the parents aren't there. So when you're teaching like two-year-olds and three-year-olds, the parents don't always leave diapers because the classes are only like 30 to 40 minutes. So if the kid has a big accident, you don't have a diaper. <laughs> There's not really a lot you can do. And a lot of schools for, you know, just safety purposes so that parents can't say like, well, what was she doing with my child in the bathroom? They don't want us to like yeah. change the diaper. So that can cause some problems when there's a big blowout and there's no way to fix it. I'm glad I never encountered that in my, my Hagoan job. Uh, but now that you say it, um, the, those moms and tots classes, they do sound like a really uh, interesting demographic and not one I've really heard of outside of Japan. So I think maybe some schools in other countries are missing out on a whole other revenue source they could be tapping into. I think it's really good, especially if the parent is considering putting the kids in the school or in the program when they get older, because at that point, the kid's already comfortable with you. Like the kid already knows you because he's been there and seen you. So it makes the transition a lot easier when they do join the class without mom. Not so many uh, teary outbursts at the door when they're being yeah, dropped Yeah, because it's not day. like, who's this strange lady? It's, oh, I know you. So it makes things a lot easier. How about teaching? Um... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. I was just going to say the early exposure helps too to the language. Exactly. Yeah, Especially, yeah. what is it like? zero to six months or something where the kid's brain is just like a sponge and just absorbs everything absolutely so my next question was about teaching older teenagers how would you say it compares to working with teens in north america and what advice would you have for keeping older teens engaged in the subject matter i think the biggest difference 
like I, I didn't teach when I was in Canada because I was still in university at the time. But just thinking back to my days at school and just like how we reacted in the classroom, we were a lot more verbal. Like we weren't really nervous if we made a mistake, a teacher asked a question, we would all like just shout out an answer. If we were wrong, we were wrong. But in Japan, it's more, there's this fear of being wrong or of like going against the group idea. So the older classes, the struggle can kind of be, they don't want to answer if they think their answer is going to be different from their friends. So things like when we have debate classes, that can be a little difficult because if one kid answers one thing, and all the other kids answer something else, then that kid's going to switch teams. That's a terrible debate. Yeah, it's, it's not a very good debate. Usually what ends up happening is I will choose a side and then everyone else can have the other side and we debate against each other. It's not nearly as fun. Um, of course, there are exceptions. Like there are kids here who are very like outspoken and very like they have their opinion and they'll defend it. But there is kind of more of a group mindset here. So sometimes having having discussions in class can be a little hard there's this sort of idea there's only one answer that's correct and they all want to answer correctly but the respect is really important here like I've never had an older student who's rude if they show up late for class they like apologize they always do their homework which is lovely and they usually are very interested in you like they don't really want to talk about themselves so much, but they want to ask you like, oh, what's Canada like? What kind of food is there? They're okay asking questions, but they're not always happy answering questions. Pros and cons for sure. Right. Um, what drew you to Japan in the first place? This is actually kind of terrible. Oh, no. um, so I was in university and I was studying English and psychology and I was planning on going to like a teacher's college afterwards. But I had a professor in university who had taught like in Korea for a few years. So he was like, before you go, maybe take a year, get your TESOL, teach abroad, see how it goes. So I thought, well, I do want to travel. So that sounds good. So I literally Googled safest country for single females. <laughs> and Japan popped up. So I was like, okay. That's a very valid Google search, I would say. 100%. Yeah, I agree. Oh, but I feel so bad because like Japanese friends, when we're like first getting to know each other, will ask like, oh, why did you want to come to Japan? And like my answer is Google said it was safe. <laughs> I usually just say like, oh, the nature is beautiful. Well, well honestly, I mean, though, was, <laughs> was uh, did you find Google was correct in its assessment? I think Google was very correct in its assessment. Like in Canada, sometimes walking home after school or after work like I would be nervous if it was dark or like I would just call a taxi because I didn't feel safe in Japan like no matter what time of night it's been I've walked if I miss last train I'll just walk home I've never been bothered I've never been harassed even a couple times people have like stopped me and just asked like are you okay are you lost because you know google maps is not always reliable but well, safety yeah. like biggest concern is probably earthquakes yeah <laughs> That's fair. So what are some of the must-see places people shouldn't miss when they're traveling or teaching in Japan from your experience? If you like naturey places and you come in the summer season, you should really, really try the Mount Fuji hike. It is 
a little bit tough and it is quite busy because it's not open for a long period of time but the sunrise at like the top of the mountain is so beautiful and the Fushimi Inari Shrine in Kyoto like I think Kyoto is probably my number one recommendation Kyoto is absolutely beautiful they have such a rich history and so many like temples and old buildings in nature and then Hiroshima I think out of all the places I've lived Hiroshima is the best place they have a lot of stuff but it's more like history so you can go see the bomb dome and the peace park and they have a museum there which is very very sad but I think it's something that's very good to check out and then they also have Miyajima and Okunoshima which is another history island it used to be like a gas producing factory in the war and then when you know the war was ending they burnt all the buildings and now you can go see all the old buildings and it's an entire island filled with wild rabbits Yeah, I'm not kidding. Right now, the population is like 1,000. So you just go and there are just 1,000 little bunnies who have no natural predators. So they're not afraid of you. And they just like charge you because you can buy like food and like feed them all. So it's so cool. Like a giant rabbit petting zoo? Yes, it's so cool. (laughs) But be careful because I made the mistake. I made like a sandwich because there's not really anywhere to eat on the islands. You have to bring food. And I was sitting down to eat my sandwich. And a bunny stole my sandwich. Oh, no. <laughs> it was so sad. But what are you supposed to do? Do you see that cute little face? What are you supposed to do? Just like take it back? Reminds me of the oh, time wow. uh, my brother-in-law's dog stole my ribs at a barbecue right out of my hand. Never <laughs> forgave that dog. He was hungry. <laughs> um, do you have any recommendations for specific restaurants to visit and foods to try? So I'm actually vegan, which means a lot of the like really popular restaurants like Ichiraku Ramen and stuff don't have stuff I can eat at. Hmm. There's this really good restaurant in Ueno, and I'm not really sure what the name is, but it's a vegan ramen and it's inside like Ueno Station, like inside the ticket gate. And they have vegan ramens and like vegan soups. And it is so good. They have this yuzu ramen and like buy a ticket to Japan just for yuzu ramen. Like it is that good. If you find the name, you can email it to us and we can uh, add that in as a caption or something. Yeah, you like you have to go there. It's so, so good. And then there's this place in Ikebukuro and they have a couple locations. So there's one in Shinjuku and I think one in like Ginza. They have these heavenly pancakes and it's called Einsoff and it's so, so good. Like they're the best pancakes I've ever tried in the entire world. And I'm from Canada. (laughs) Are these like sweet sweet pancakes or savory? They're sweet and they come with like seasonal fruit and then little like homemade like almond gelato on top. And then you can also get things like vegan burgers and like vegan curries and stuff there but pancakes go for the pancakes (laughs) love it um what about drinks is there anything special or exciting beyond your typical sake or kiranishiban it really depends where you are so nihonshu is pretty popular and you can get it like pretty much at any izakaya nihonshu is just like another type of alcohol 
I'm not really sure what it is, but you can get it like hot. So it's really good. And when it's warm, it doesn't have like that sting of alcohol. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I've had sake warm, so I got you. <laughs> and then I guess beer is pretty popular here. Like different areas have different like beers. So like Asahi is from Hokkaido. And if you go to Hokkaido, they have like a special type of Asahi beer you can only get there. Like they don't have it anywhere else in Japan. You have to go to Hokkaido to try that beer. So it's it's like a point of pride because my Hokkaido friends always like, we have the best beer. <laughs> but then if you go to Okinawa, it's like the Orion beer. And they'll tell you like, Orion's the best beer. So. Is there any sort of like craft beer scene? If, you know, I wanted a West Coast IPA, let's say. Do they do things like that? Yeah, they have... Um... You'd have to Google where it is because I'm not really a huge drinker. But in Tokyo, they have a whole bunch of like fancy bars, I guess you could call them. So they have places where you can get like imported beers and like IP beers and like home brewed beers. Uh, they also have beer gardens here. And then they also have these like sort of mixes. So it's like a cafe, but also a bar and you can get alcoholic coffee, hmm. which is fantastic there's one in Shinjuku but I have I haven't gone in I have friends who go but I'm not really much of a drinker that's fair uh, so in a previous conversation you mentioned some less than ideal situations you found yourself in with a school or maybe two you'd worked at in Japan previously would you mind elaborating on what kinds of things you would recommend people look to avoid uh, once you know what to look out for and how best to rectify a situation like that. Always read your contact, sorry, your contacts, your contracts like really, really carefully. If anything seems weird or off, kind of ask about it. So in Japan, they have like this national insurance. And basically, if you're working full time at a company, that company should be enrolling you in it. And that's like, your pension, your unemployment insurance, your health insurance, like all of that. And if you're working full-time for a company, you should be enrolled through that company. But some companies will try to do things so they don't have to enroll you. So I had one company where they actually put me and a few other employees on a different contract through a different company. Because if a company has less than five employees, they don't have to roll you through it apparently or that's what they told us when we like signed the contract so we were like oh that's weird but okay and then later they switched us over and they're like oh no actually you have to be on like this company's contract and we're going to enroll you through like the real pension so we're like okay but then like in our paycheck it switched to all Japanese so we couldn't read it and there were a lot of charges coming out of it and like we compared and like the charge amount was different for all of us. So it was really confusing. So for situations like that, there is a labor office. There is an English branch. And any questions you have about your contract or anything that's maybe a little iffy, they will look at for free. And if there is an issue, they will rectify it for free. So if someone tells you like, don't cause a fuss because you can't afford the lawyer, no, if, if it's something like that, it's covered for free. Um, the other thing, be really careful of, they call them black companies here. Basically companies that will kind of do stuff like that where they'll try 
not to get you in the pension or they'll like try to get you to work free overtime or they'll like give you a workload higher than what was told to you during the time of your contract signing. So anything like that can be a red flag and it's really important to know what your rights are. So definitely make sure you know where the labor office is just in case. I appreciate you sharing that insight. And I'm sure some of our listeners will as well who are thinking about Japan. It's good to know what to look out for before you're in that situation. So you have a plan of action. One question we always like to ask our guests who have taught abroad is what advice would you have for people who are maybe on the fence about getting TESOL certified, wondering if it's really worth their time and money? I for one think it's worth the time and worth the money. I had a wonderful experience at TESOL. Like I wish I could take the course again just because it was so fun. But I think, think if you're trying to use TESOL as a way to see the world or do you actually want to teach? Because if you're going abroad and you're not actually interested in teaching or you don't even want to like give it a chance, you're just sort of using it as a way like, oh, I want to see Japan. This is a way I can do it and get paid. I don't think it's going to be worth it because if you're not performing well at work, your coworkers aren't going to like you very much. And that might sort of, you know, dampen your view on the country and maybe, you know, make you enjoy it a little less. But if you're actually interested in teaching or at least trying teaching, I think it's definitely worth it. You learn a lot. And then it's a really good chance, especially if like me, you were thinking of like actually going and getting your teaching license, that's a lot more expensive than your TESOL certificate. Get your TESOL certificate first. Try teaching abroad. If you enjoy it, maybe do it for a few years and you can go home and like get your actual teaching license. Teaching license. <laughs> it's uh, it's 9 p.m. here, so my English is done for the day. Well, I appreciate you staying up so late to chat with us today. <laughs> And uh, no, from, from 9 p.m. on, it's like the workday is over. So now it's like Jinglish time, half Japanese, half English. I'm sure our, our, our listeners are glad uh, you joined us as well to benefit from your experience and wisdom gained from teaching in Japan. So again, thanks so much, Kirsten. It was great to chat with you today. No worries. Thank you for having me. Before we go, we do have a little job placement update for those job seekers who may be listening. So you may recall back in episode 45, we had an interview with the founder of a great volunteer opportunity in Spain, and they're starting to interview now for January starts. It's only a three-month commitment. They offer free room and board with a local host family, and it's really, uh, in my opinion, a fantastic way for young up-and-coming teachers to gain valuable classroom experience while also experiencing that authentic Spanish lifestyle and getting to live in Europe, which a lot of people would love to be able to do. So as someone who lived with the host family as a volunteer myself uh, in my younger days, I really can't recommend it enough. I don't think people realize what a life-changing experience that can be. Then over in Asia, employers are still looking for K-12 teachers for all over tropical Thailand, especially in Bangkok, as well as the central and northern regions. Contracts range from about five to 12 months in length, depending on one term or two term contracts. So it's another good one for people who want to go short term as opposed to a full year. And pretty much all positions include a Thai co-teacher to assist with classroom management and lesson planning. So there's a lot to be said for teaching in Thailand for new teachers. Be sure to reach out to your job placement advisor for more details. 
Thanks as always for tuning into the Teaching Abroad Pod. We're aiming to release new episodes monthly for the foreseeable future. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe and share with your friends. Remember, you can find us on YouTube, Spotify, and your podcasting app of choice. If you have any great ideas that you'd like to see in an upcoming episode, feel free to send us a message on Instagram or email us at teachingabroadpod at oxfordseminars.com. Thanks very much. See you next time. See ya.